0: Welcome back, friend, to part two of Salvation and Sabbath on the Glorious and the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles. On part one of this episode, I shared with you that there are two themes that I haven't been able to get out of my head and my heart during this global pause. Last episode, we wrapped our hearts around the final Passover lamb, Jesus, who gave his life once and for all to redeem us. Purchase us back so that we might spend eternity with Him. But even more than that, that we might be restored to the Father even now. We don't have to wait until eternity to enjoy His presence. We are restored now. When we believe on Jesus and apply His sufficient blood to our own lives, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the unshakable kingdom of God, restored to the arms of Of our Father forever. So imagine with me, what if tonight, all over the news, it is suddenly declared that COVID 19 has mysteriously disappeared? No more sickness and death from this awful thing, no more fear over it, no more being cooped up. Suddenly, God just moves around the globe and the virus is nowhere to be found. The government is just left dumbfounded as they announced that we can just go back to life as normal because somehow this thing is over. It's the miracle we've all dreamed and prayed for, right? Wouldn't it be incredible? What if that happened? What might your day look like tomorrow? I realize it would take a bit to get back into the swing of things, but what would you do first if there were no limitations? Where would you go? Who would you want to run and hug first? What if schools were called back into session, even just for a few weeks, you know, to sort of make up for lost time? What if your job suddenly called you back in first thing in the morning? Suddenly it's coffee on the go, carpool lines, rush hour traffic. I was on a Zoom call the other night with the wives of our community group, and each of us took turns sharing about all the glorious we found in this pause. We shared the struggles, too, and trust me, there are some intense struggles just within our tiny little group. But in the end, the glorious rose above the fear and the unknown. One mom shared about how her daughter's intense social anxiety has just disappeared during this time. She believes it's simply because they've just slowed down and spent time together as a family Collectively, I think we'd all agree that this whole thing has revealed our pace as the human race, a pace that we think we have to keep in order to stay in the race of life. If life was back to normal in the blink of an eye next week, I wonder if while we're all hustling back to our posts, if we might also get a lump in our throats and a sinking feeling in our stomachs. Do I pray that God does this kind of miracle? Of course— I also believe that He could absolutely do it, but I wonder if our healing is truly going to be found in the pause. What if this is really all about a new normal? What if God is slowing us down to a complete stop so that we might reemerge at a completely different pace to get back to life? But real life, the kind of life He offers as a gift, the kind of life that He Himself lived— and set for us in the person of Jesus. I believe that this has felt like one long Sabbath for a reason. This is God interrupting our world and valuing Himself on our behalf as a culture because we've forgotten how to value Him above all things. The heart of the Sabbath is celebration of God as the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things. It is us abstaining from our work, our striving, our pace, in honor of Him, as a way of valuing Him and valuing the way He already showed us how to live and do life. Genesis two one says, And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended His work, Which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Part one was about salvation because I believe that God is a God of order. And just like bullseye living that we talk about on this podcast all the time, everything flows from that initial place of being restored to the Father by salvation, by trusting Christ. Some of us maybe needed the joy of our salvation to be restored during this time. We also needed to care about the salvation of others again, that it's a real thing, remembering that life isn't really about the carpal lines queuing up again and the airports operating as normal and our vacation we dreamed of becoming a reality this summer. The truth is, we're in the middle of a battle And COVID-19 can't even touch the fierceness of this battle. I think we forget that it's a matter of life and death. Yes, the Spirit of God is the one who has to draw people into Himself, but just like that family hug I've told you about before when the kids were little, and I would hug Nathan in the kitchen, and our littles would spontaneously run and grab a hold of both of our legs to get in on the embrace. This is what it looks like for us to welcome others into the family of God. We just get to keep spontaneously embracing the Father, and He compels others then to want to get in on that embrace. To fully embrace the Father, we need our joy restored in these days. We need our affections to be redirected. We need our highest value to be Him again. And before we can outwardly express Sabbath, we must inwardly be experiencing the Sabbath rest that is available to us in Jesus. It's an outward expression of an inward state. In Matthew 11:28 and 29, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." Andrew Murray, in Abiding in Christ, says this about this passage in Matthew. Have you ever noticed how in the original invitation of the Savior to come to Him, the promise of rest was repeated twice, with such a variation in the conditions as might suggest that abiding rest can only be found in abiding nearness. First, the Savior says, "'Come to me, and I will give you rest.'" The very moment you come and believe, I will give you rest, the rest of pardon and acceptance found in my love. I'm going to stop there for a minute and interject that this, I believe, is referring to salvation. Again, there's this order. There's this initial invitation where Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest in the form of pardon of sin and eternal acceptance in my love. This is God's adoption of us that we spoke of in part one. But his call to rest is twofold. It's layered and repeated. Let's read on with Andrew Murray. But we know that all that God bestows needs time to become fully our own. It must be embraced, appropriated, and assimilated into our soul. Without this, not even Christ's giving can make it our own in terms of full experience and enjoyment. And so the Savior repeats His promise in words that clearly speak not so much of the initial rest with which He welcomes the weary ones to come, but of the deeper and personally appropriated rest of the soul that abides in Him. Now He not only says, Come to Me, but also, Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. Become My scholars. Yield yourselves my training. Submit in all things to my will. Let your whole life be one with mine. In other words, abide in me. And then he adds, not only I will give, but also you will find rest for your souls. The rest that he gave at your first coming will become something you have really found and made your very own. The deeper abiding rest, which comes from longer acquaintance, closer fellowship, and entire surrender. Take my yoke and learn from me. Abide in me. This is the path to abiding rest. These words of the Savior uncover what you have perhaps often wondered. How is it that the rest you at times enjoy is so often lost? This must have been the reason. You did not understand how entire surrender to Jesus is the secret of perfect rest. And this is why we strive and hustle and manage and try to maintain this life, because to surrender all we fear would be the death to everything we love and hold dear. So we cling to earthly things. We compartmentalize. We say, Jesus, you can have this, but you can't have this. We live divided lives and completely miss the trueness and the drink of living water that is this rest that Jesus offers us when He says, now that you've come to me, abide in me. Bring everything you love with you into this place of abiding. This kind of surrender and consecration of our lives is what is required to enter into God's rest. And until we are experiencing this inner Sabbath of our souls, complete rest in Jesus because we've surrendered our all to Jesus, to outwardly observe Sabbath would simply be motions we've gone through because we felt like we should. I believe God's heart for us is to have both, in the order in which He always intended because He is a God of order, that His commandments would be eventually written on our hearts and our minds as He always intended, which we'll talk more about in a minute that we'd move beyond the do's and the don'ts of the law to, God, what can I do to bless you today? Nathan and I had the wonderful privilege of getting invited to visit Israel this past November. I'll never forget pulling into our hotel that first evening in Jaffa, right after we landed. It was late afternoon on a Saturday, and our hotel sat right on the sea. It was gorgeous, but really the most beautiful sight— was getting to experience with our own eyes for the first time Sabbath in Israel, or as they call it, Shabbat. The shore was lined with people playing, relaxing, running, flying kites, riding bikes, having picnics, enjoying life. Kind of looks like some of the scenes that we've probably all seen recently as we've driven by our local neighborhoods on the way to the grocery store. These are unusual sightings, unfortunately, for suburbia. God must definitely be up to something, wouldn't you think? For the Jewish people, Shabbat begins on Friday evening right before sundown and lasts for 25 hours until the third star can be seen in the sky on Saturday evening. One of the greetings that you'll hear all day long on a Saturday in Israel is Shabbat Shalom, which is a warm greeting that just means peaceful Sabbath. And peaceful they are— And part of that peacefulness is because they put away all technology, including their phones, for 25 hours. This is their time to gather with loved ones and friends. They share amazing food together. They sing. They dance. They pray. They worship. It's beautiful. On the following Friday night, we got to be a part of a traditional Shabbat meal with a Jewish family who live in the heart of Israel. Our tour guide gave us the heads up to not pull out our phones during that time in their home, not even to ask for a picture, because it would likely offend them. As we sat around the table together, they were more than gracious and in inviting us to ask any questions we would like. As we began to talk about all the different ways that they celebrate the Sabbath, one thing that they wanted to make really clear from the get-go— Is that rest? Is this expression of wholeheartedly, mind, body, and spirit, abstaining from work, as I mentioned before? It's not this posture that says, oh, I better not work today. It's 25 hours of your life that you purposefully and intentionally pause and remember God. You get to. You gladly abstain. You gladly sit back and enjoy the fruit of your labor and what God has given you. This helps us get our hearts around what Jesus said in Mark 2.27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The space and the slowing of the pace that Sabbath brings, it's to carve out a space in us for enjoying God again. Not only is it purposefully a set-apart day, a special day, it's a God-centered day. It's not about what you're prohibited from doing It's about honoring and remembering and celebrating and delighting in God together. One really precious and surreal and slightly funny thing that happened around the table that night was that our new Jewish friends asked us Americans to sing a song at the table as well. A big part of their dinner together every Friday night includes prayer, and it also includes songs. And they sang several songs that night in Hebrew and even taught us a few of them. But as I said, they at one point because they learned that many of us at the table were singers, and worship leaders asked us to sing. Nathan and I were at the table, along with Eric and Kristen, my brother and sister-in-law. My best friend Molly, who was next to me, also our friend Todd and his wife Carrie, as well as our friends Rachel and Rod from the Atlanta area. Well, earlier that day, we had all stood together with our little group in the beautiful Church of St. Anne, located at the start of the Via Dolorosa, It was built by the Crusaders, and it's said to have the most beautiful acoustics in the world. So if you go there with a group someday, you're going to want to sing. And that morning, we had all stood there together in that place and lifted up the song, On You Stay. So when the sweet Jewish couple asked us to sing something, that chorus came to my mind. And as we were all looking at each other like, what are we going to sing right now? I said, what about On You Stay? And everyone just kind of nervously nodded yes at each other, and we started in. But something happened when we lifted our voices together. Of course, our Jewish friends didn't know this song, so it was just the nine of us Americans sitting there facing one another at the table, and we broke into three-part harmony as we lifted up that chorus. Holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. I don't know if it was the acoustics of their little apartment or if angels joined in with us in that moment, but it sounded like there were twice as many of us at that table. It was beautiful. We were even looking at ourselves in disbelief. And then as if to declare a lifelong blessing over that table and over that home that night, we sang out, Worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb Ah." I sat mostly quiet at the table that night, letting my extroverted friends really carry the conversation, and I couldn't help but just be moved by the fact that everything on the table had meaning. Every word that they uttered had significance. Every song they sang, every move they made was a pause to honor God that night. And all I could think—and I don't mean this with any disrespect to the Jewish people. In fact, they have a place in my heart now, and I'm praying for them for the first time in my life— Those who have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah, I'm praying that they will truly see Him in these days and that He will reveal Himself to them fully. But all I could think was, I live in the freedom of Jesus, the Messiah. I drink of His living water. I know Him and He knows me. And yet I'm speaking for myself here, but for the most part, I haven't been celebrating and honoring and remembering and blessing God weekend after weekend in this way ever. I mean, yeah, I might not have worked in observance of Sabbath many, many times, but y'all collectively as a people, every Friday night, they have a dinner and light candles and break bread and sing songs. And the husband blesses the wife and his children with intentional words. And every Saturday is a holiday. holiday and they have fun together and they relax because of God. I think one way that we can always approach people who are different than us in terms of culture and ethnicity is that we always have something that we can learn from each other. We can learn from them just as they can learn from us. What made the Shabbat meal so deeply meaningful for the nine of us Christ followers at the table was found and expressed in that very blessing we sheepishly but somehow supernaturally sang over the table that night, Worthy is the Lamb. He is the centerpiece. He is the meal. He's the song. He's the sweetness of the fellowship and the laughter. He's the blessing. He's the light represented in the glowing of the candle. He is our Sabbath rest. One of the questions that my bold and extroverted friends asked of our Jewish friends was, how many laws do you have to keep every day as part of your Jewish heritage? Well, the woman of the home answered, 613, she said. You start the minute you wake up with prayer and remembrance of the Torah, and you practice and keep those laws until you lay your head on the pillow that night. She said, they say it's the same amount of seeds that are in a pomegranate. Six hundred and thirteen. I couldn't help but recall that on an episode this past fall, we talked about the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and you might remember that we talked about opening up a pomegranate with your children and taking out the seeds one by one and thanking Jesus for the sweetness of His grace as we remember that He has saved us from the sourness of sin, but He has also freed us from the old way of the written code so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit. Romans 7.4 says, So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to one another, to Him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. I've been recently studying what a Shabbat meal from a Messianic perspective could look like. In fact, if you're a patron of this podcast, you're going to get that resource to enjoy, so there's a little surprise there coming for you. But if you don't choose to practice Shabbat meals, and I assure you that we don't have Shabbat meals every Friday, even though it's something that I would love to start doing in a traditional sense at least every once in a while, it is beautiful just to see the way that even Jesus would have grown up. He would have wholeheartedly participated in Shabbat meals growing up. He would have watched His mother on Fridays prepare for this special meal all day, maybe even the day before, because let's face it, they didn't have Costco. (laughs) She would have been working so hard to prepare and preserve what they needed so that just before sundown, actually no later than 18 minutes before sundown on Friday evening to be exact, Jesus would have watched His mother light the Shabbat candles of their home. Waving her hands three times in front of the flames and covering her face, this would signify that she was now placing herself in the posture of rest. For Jewish women, this includes all the restrictions of Shabbat. It is the woman's place to this day to usher Shabbat into her home, as the role of a Jewish woman and wife is that she is called the mainstay of the home. She is the keeper of traditions. She sets the tone in how the family will go about keeping those traditions as a service to God, while the husband's role is to confidently bless her in it as he declares over her at the Shabbat table, a woman of valor who can find Her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and nothing shall he lack. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a God-fearing woman is much to be praised. Place before her the fruit of her hands. Wherever people gather, her deeds speak her praise. That's from Proverbs 31. I wonder... At what point in Jesus' life did it become clear to him as he sat and watched his mother on a Friday night posturing herself in rest by placing herself under those restrictions that God commanded upon her? I wonder, when did he know that he would become her rest, her very salvation, her way, her truth, her life, her inward Sabbath? When did he know that he would lift the restrictions and bring the joy of relationship with God forever? That tradition would be traded for transformation as one day he would become the bread broken, the wine poured out, changing everything for everyone who might proclaim at their table, worthy is the Lamb. What a beautiful inward rest we have in this person of Jesus Christ, so that any outward expression that we talk of moving forward is just to be done in freedom, in joy, in love, and in honor. So it's not so much about a moral requirement anymore as we've moved on from that, as we've accepted Christ. This is about enjoying the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is our very strength in this life. That's Nehemiah 8. And interestingly enough, this is what the Levites declared over the people after the law was read over them in the days of the Mosaic law. Verse 2 of Nehemiah 8 says, So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it out loud from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand, and the people all listened attentively to the book of the law. Verse 9 says, Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. It was heavy. Verse 10, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. It's interesting, isn't it? It seems that the word joy was the turning point. This wasn't to confine and control them. Everything about God's law was always pointing to communion with God that produces joy, the kind of joy that turns into our very strength. And praise be to God that He sent Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant, one that has far better promises than the old one. It goes without saying that there are a lot of differing opinions on Sabbath. Even as we read the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, it can start to feel a bit hazy on where we should land with the observance of Sabbath. Well, a blanket statement that I have no problem throwing over this whole podcast is that Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. That is Matthew 12, 8. And Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The major problem that Jesus had with the Sabbath, among other things, was that for centuries before he arrived on the scene, the rabbis of the Jewish people had added tons of demanding details to the Sabbath. And it had turned what was originally a gift of God to us as his people into a restrictive religious ritual. Well, Jesus comes in with a completely different view, (laughs) a different everything. And he goes head to head with these traditions and turns them on their heads. We see this in Matthew 12, 1 through 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck ears of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor of those who were with him, but only for the priests, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, this is him valuing himself on our behalf. He's saying, remember, something greater than the grandest thing you know is right here in front of you. Something greater than even life getting back to normal is right here in front of your eyes. Don't miss it. Jesus brought in a new way of everything, didn't he? John Piper said this concerning the Sabbath. Jesus didn't come to abolish the Sabbath, but to dig it out from under the mountain of legalistic sediment— And give it to us again as a blessing rather than a burden. It is a day for showing mercy and a day for doing good. It should not be governed rigidly by narrow definitions of what is work and what is not. It is a day to focus on the Lord. And now Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, so it's a day to focus on Jesus. And it is impossible that a day focused on Jesus should be a burden to the believing heart, this Jesus who says, come to me all you who are laboring and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I couldn't help but think of 1 John five three that says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. This is really precious if you think about it, and it reminds me of what we've been learning with Psalm 119, that God's law and His rules We're never about controlling His people or just making us do what He says. It has always been about grace and a relationship with us. And it's His heart over us that keeping His commandments would not be a burden, but a blessing. You parents know what this feels like. We all long for our children to align themselves with the heart and the mission of our family, to enjoy fellowship with us, to know they always have a place to come when they're upset or afraid or lost, But breaking our boundaries and disobeying the rules of our home, it breaks fellowship, doesn't it? And it breaks our heart. It's the same with God. He desires that alignment with His heart and the mission of His kingdom. But He wants us to enjoy Him and enjoy being a part of His family and fellowshipping with Him and honoring Him, remembering, celebrating Him, but as a blessing, not a burden. He held to this about His love that he would give us Jesus. Hebrews 8, 6-13 says, But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, He has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So now that we have an understanding that Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath and that it is a gift to us from God, one that's to be enjoyed, we can know again that this is not a moral obligation, but it's this beautiful and ceremonial act of freedom and honor. Paul said in Colossians two sixteen and 17, "'Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath,' These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Again, we see that it comes down to a matter of the heart, doesn't it? It's not a have-to for us. It's a get-to. It's not something that exists to slap more rules and regulations on us. It's about posturing the heart to stop, to remember, to honor God, to trust Him again for everything we need. And Paul even puts it in perspective that it's all merely a shadow of things to come and all of it is about Jesus anyway. Every bit of it belongs to Him. Holding the other side of the tension here, the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments, and it is important to the Lord, as we've been saying. In fact, it's one of the commandments that has a blessing attached to it, even telling us that if we do this, we will find our joy in the Lord. Exodus thirty-one thirteen: if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath— And from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. So we know that Sabbath was and still is a big deal to God. And if you just look around at culture right now, and think about it for a minute, you can probably see why. In many ways, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but we've forgotten. And maybe we don't even know how to enjoy God. We don't know how to slow down and keep a pace that honors Him. I believe this pause is God showing up and valuing Himself on our behalf again, because we've forgotten how to value Him above all things. And hopefully we can now see All that has been standing in our way of both treasuring each other and treasuring God above everything. So, if all of this is about freedom and meant for honor, what does it look like for those in Christ to still honor God with Sabbath? Many scholars believe, and I happen to agree, that God said, Work six days, and on the seventh day, rest from your work. If that needs to be a Tuesday, then let your seventh day be Tuesday. The point is, is to honor the Lord with a day of rest somewhere in your week. Some people think that only Saturday applies here. Others only think Sunday applies. Some say that every day is a day of rest in Christ. Paul addressed this in Romans 14 when he said, again, this shows us the heart of the matter, One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind— The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. It comes back to that honor. It's not about the exact time or day. Just learning to enjoy and honor the Lord again. I told you earlier how blown away I was as I sat at that Shabbat table that Friday night with our new Jewish friends, and everything we said and did and ate had meaning. I believe this is why we all love it when the Lord's Supper is served at church. We have it every Sunday, which is one of the things that I love most about our gatherings, even online. We serve communion from our homes now, and it's beautiful. The five of us have been gathering around our coffee table on our knees, and we take it together as a family, as our pastors lead us. I think this speaks to our deep need for worship and observing something holy and deep and bigger than us. I think we deeply spiritually crave adoration and even for worship to look and feel different than the world. I'll never forget listening to an exorcist actually speak at the Q conference that our friends Gabe and Rebecca Lyons so beautifully provide each year for leaders. And one of the things that he said is that teenagers will often delve into Ouija boards and seances because studies show that kids and teenagers actually crave spiritual experiences. I sat there and thought, wow, all the more reason that I want to create that in my home and be about offering that. To my kids, I believe that our youth would embrace this thing called Sabbath if we were to bring experiences like this into our homes more often, eventually let them invite their friends into it when we can have gatherings again. I think we would all say that we have a deep need to experience what it looks like to celebrate the set-apartness of being a believer in Christ. We long for this kind of beauty, to break bread together in this way. We need it. One of the things we noticed on the Shabbat table was the bread. They actually had two loaves sitting on the table, that beautifully braided challah bread. And they told us this is to remember Exodus 16, 22 and 23. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, two omers per person, and all the leaders of the congregation came and reported this to Moses. He told them, this is what the Lord has said, tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil, then set aside whatever remains and keep it until morning. So the double portion of bread on the table is to symbolize God as our provider and that we will actually not lose out or even suffer financially because of our observance of rest and abstaining from work. In fact, this is a promise where we are likely to see that God will show up and provide in this very place of honoring Him with rest. It's us saying... I believe that if I obey you and honor you in this way and choosing a day of rest, that you will do your part in taking care of me just as you took care of the Israelites in the desert and even provide a double portion. I know for myself, I'll admit, I come up against that fear sometimes that if I don't do some work on that seventh day, if I don't keep pushing forward, that I'm going to lose out somehow or I'm going to suffer loss or get behind what i've come to realize is that double portion is a very real promise but it's actually in our rest and our trust in god as our provider that he actually supernaturally comes through through that surrender i'll end with this our message from our church this past sunday i'd love to recommend it to you actually it's church of the city franklin tennessee it's online of course It's from April 19th, and it's a pastor from our sister church in New York City, actually right there in Times Square. It's Pastor John Tyson, and he shared a powerful message. He and his wife actually came down with COVID-19 very early on when the virus hit New York City really hard. But he shared how our hearts right now are either being pulled into the past, as we find ourselves dwelling on what was, of course, which is not hard to do, as we are all likely scrambling a bit on how to get things back to the way they were. Or our hearts are being pulled into the future, as in, what is our new normal going to be? What will life look like beyond this? Most likely, it will be different. So His challenge to us, which is God's challenge, I believe, to us every day, is how can we be present? He made the point that we often look up and wonder in times like this, you know, where are you, God? Yet all the while, God is looking back at us saying, where are you? He talked about turning aside to God and learning to be present in His presence. Beloved, we are in the makings of an awakening, and I don't want to miss it. I want to learn to be present in His presence. So even as we are starting to hear murmurs of reemerging into our new normal, as communities reopen, whatever that looks like, may we not let this season end without learning and establishing a new pace where we not only daily learn to be present with God in His presence, but where we weekly come back to this pause, all on our own. No governor telling us we have to But instead, just a joy that rises up in us that says, God, it's a blessing, not a burden today, to have a holiday all because of you. Whether you choose to have a special meal or simply light a candle during your morning coffee, maybe it's continuing the beautiful family traditions that have emerged during this time, even just a walk down the street after supper. May we be people of Sabbath rest who enjoy the God who gave it to us as a gift. I'll talk to you soon.